The Covenant at Sinai by Rav Chanoch Waxman Towards the end of this week's parasha, Parashat Mishpatim, the Torah recounts the striking crescendo of Ma'amad Har Sinai, the revelation at Mount Sinai. Vayikach sefer haberit, vayikra be'ozne ha'am, vayomru, kol asher diber Hashem na'aseh v'nishma. And Moshe took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will obey. In contrast to our normal way of thinking about Na'asev and Ishma as a self-contained and unique note of unparalleled commitment, the Torah portrays the declaration not in isolation, but rather as a part of a larger symphony, a ceremony which might be termed Brit Sinai, the covenant at Sinai. This ceremony stretches over at least six verses and consists of at least the following events. First, Moshe obtains the acquiescence of the people to God's commands and rules. Second, Moshe writes down the commands, erects both an altar and twelve pillars symbolizing the twelve tribes of Israel, and sends young men to offer sacrifices. Third, Moshe collects half of the blood of the sacrifices in basins, and pours the other half of the blood of the sacrifices on the altar. Fourth, Moshe reads the just transcribed Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant, and the people respond with Na'aseh v'nishma. And fifth, Moshe sprinkles the remaining half of the blood on the people and declares it the blood of the covenant that was contracted on these commands. With the covenant completed and sealed by the pouring or sprinkling of blood, we may very well conclude that the story of Brit Sinai has reached its conclusion. However, if we read the text with the Masoretic divisions of Ptuchot and Stumot in mind, it becomes obvious that Brit Sinai continues on for another two verses and contains an additional element. The Torah recounts that Moshe, Aharon, Nadav, Avihu, and seventy elders went up onto Har Sinai, where they experienced the vision of God. They ate and drank, yet remained unharmed by God. At first glance, this appears rather strange. Why does the Torah group the ascent, vision, and meal of the leadership along with Brit Sinai? What connection exists between the blood covenant between God and the people concluded on the Sefer Habrit? and the ecstatic experience and meal of the leadership on the mountain. However, upon further analysis, these questions are relatively easy to resolve. As Rashbam has already pointed out, other covenants between God and Israel also culminate in divine revelation. For example, Brit Bain Habitarim, the covenant of the pieces, culminates with a smoking torch passed between the pieces, an apparent manifestation of the divine presence. Likewise, when the covenant is renewed after the sin of the golden calf, Moshe is promised by God, you shall see my back. Brit Sinai follows this pattern, ending with a manifestation of the Divine Presence. On a similar note, many treaties and covenants conclude with a shared meal. For example, when Yitzchak and Avimelech conclude a Brit, they seal it by eating and drinking. Likewise, Yaakov and Lavan seal their parting treaty by partaking in a meal. Regarding this particular as well, Brit Sinai follows a more general pattern. In sum, we may claim that the meal constitutes a standard concluding element of any treaty, and the revelation constitutes the unique concluding element of a treaty between God and Israel. While Brit Sinai can be viewed as a self-contained and coherent unit, it can also be viewed as a part of a larger entity, the corpus of chapter 24. The chapter can be broken down into three sections. First, the commands. Moshe is commanded to ascend to God along with Aharon, his sons, and seventy elders. Eventually, Moshe alone is to approach God without the rest of the leadership, while the people do not ascend the mountain at all. 
Second, Brit Sinai. And finally, third, the ascent of Moshe. Moshe is once again commanded to ascend to God, this time for the specific purpose of receiving the Luchot, Torah and commandments. Moshe takes leave of the leadership and ascends the mountain, where he enters the cloud of the Divine Presence and remains for forty days and forty nights. Section one of the chapter consists of two commands, one of which is fulfilled in section two and the other in section three. First, Moshe is commanded, Ascend, Aleh, to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, and seventy of the elders. This is fulfilled by the ascent, revelation, and meal of the leadership at the end of section two. Note especially that the Torah utilizes the term Vayal to describe this ascent. Second, Moshe is commanded to ascend to God by himself. Vinigash Moshe Levado. Moshe will approach alone. This occurs when Moshe takes leave of the elders and ascends alone in section 3. In addition to the command accomplishment structure outlined above, chapter 24 is also united by the concept of ascent. The term appears seven times in the chapter, and at least once in each of the sections delineated above. Finally, section 2, Brit Sinai, is not only integrated into chapter 24 by the term ascent and by a structure of dual command and accomplishment, but also by a unique type of parallelism, the literary feature known as chiasm. Here it follows the pattern A-B-A-B-C-C-B-A-B-A. This may be mapped as follows. A. Moshe is commanded to ascend to God. B. The leadership will ascend, but only to a specified distance. Again, A. Moshe alone will approach God. B. The leadership will not approach that close. C. The people will not ascend to God at all. C. The people remain at the bottom of the mountain with the altar and engage in the covenant ceremony. B. The leadership ascends to the specified distance. A. Moshe is commanded to ascend to God. B. Moshe takes leave of the leadership at a certain point in his ascent. And finally, A, Moshe ascends alone and enters into the cloud. The stylistic integration of Brit Sinai into the overall structure of chapter 24 and the manifold ways noted above should cause us to re-examine our assumptions about the meaning of the vision and meal of the leadership. Can we simply dismiss the ascent and meal of the leadership as a function of a standard covenantal form? Seemingly not. Rather, the structure of chapter 24 forces some fundamental questions upon us, why does the Torah choose to embed the story of the Brit Sinai in the story of the ascent to God of Moshe and the elders, what might be termed the Theophany of Sinai? What precisely is the thematic connection between the Brit and ascending the mountain to behold God and to be with him? Finally, as the apparently culminating events of Ma'amad Har Sinai, how does chapter 24 inform and affect our overall understanding and interpretation of this encounter? To the casual reader, the book of Shemot appears to be organized by chronology. The book recounts the history of the children of Israel from their days of slavery up until their assembling of the Mishkan at the end of the first year of their journey. Along the way, the varied events befalling them include being redeemed by God from Egypt, their first journey in the desert, the revelation at Sinai, and the sin of the golden calf. From a thematic perspective, the book could be roughly broken up into three basic segments. First, slavery and redemption. Second, Sinai and Torah. And third, the Mishkan. While this approach is fundamentally correct, the real story is actually quite a bit more complex. Sefer Shemot is not only organized by chronology, 
but by certain conceptual threads that weave their way through the various thematic units, knitting the book together into a multi-hued yet fundamentally unified tapestry. Let us focus on one of these strands. When Moshe first stands in front of God at the mountain of God at Chorev, and God reveals himself to Moshe through the burning bush, Moshe asks, Who am I that I should go to Paro, and that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt? God's response seemingly consists of a command. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you shall serve, ta'avdun, God on this mountain. Whether one interprets the latter part of Moshe's question as a query of the worthiness of the children of Israel, as Rashi claims, a doubting of his own suitability for the mission, as Ibn Ezra claims, or a request for practical advice as to how to accomplish his task, according to Rashbam and Ramban, God's answer is clear. From the very start, Moshe is commanded to bring the people to serve God at Chorev. A bit later on, when God gives Moshe explicit instructions for dealing with Paro, God commands Moshe to inform Paro that the Lord of the Hebrews has called to us and now lets us go a three days journey into the desert so that we may sacrifice, v'niz to God. Ever the faithful servant, Moshe informs Paro when he first confronts him that God demands, let my people go, so that they may celebrate v'yachogu to me in the desert. Throughout Moshe's dealings with Paro, the prospective celebration, service, and sacrifices, the composition of the celebratory party, and the sponsorship of the sacrifices constitute constant and recurring themes. It is only after the final plague, the death of the firstborn, that Paro relents and informs Moshe to get out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Be gone and bless me also. Strangely enough, from this point on, the perspective Chag and Avodah seem to disappear. Throughout chapters 13 to 18, which detail the aftermath of leaving Egypt, celebration and sacrifices are conspicuously absent. This might not perturb us at all. After all, Moshe needed a negotiating strategy, and the demand for a religious holiday in the desert fit the bill quite nicely. Even Paro might have acquiesced to a bit of spiritual devotion in the desert. However, this answer seems insufficient. What really was the need to lie? For that matter, in the original command to Moshe, God specified this mountain, the mountain of God at Chorev, in other words, Sinai. At the very least, as of chapter 19, when B'nai Israel arrive at Sinai, we might well expect service for the divine, celebration and sacrifices, a religious holiday and all it entails. Strangely enough, chapters 19 to 20, containing the revelation of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, contain no mention of service, celebration, or sacrifices. This brings us full circle to chapter 24 and Brit Sinai. It is in chapter 24, deep into the second thematic section of Sefer Shemot, that the celebration and service of God, which was anticipated throughout the first section of the book, takes place. As part and parcel of Brit Sinai, the children of Israel erect an altar and sacrifice to God. As part and parcel of Brit Sinai, the elders experience a vision of the divine and consume a festive meal. The religious ecstasy, the service, the sacrifices, the celebration, and the encounter with God that God commanded Moshe, and which Moshe demanded from Paro, take place in context of the Brit and only in the context of the Brit. Let us return briefly to the context of the covenant and the key phrase we began with, Na'aseh v'nishma. As pointed out earlier, B'nai Israel respond and commit to Moshe's reading of the Book of the Covenant. This book consists of the commands, divrei, and rules, mishpatim, given to Moshe by God. Seemingly, the divrei refers to the devarim spoken by God in chapter 20. 
in other words, the Ten Commandments. And the Mishpatim refers to the rules given by God in chapters 21 to 23. The Brit consists of a full-fledged and unconditional contractual commitment to the laws of God. The religious ecstasy, the encounter with God, the service and sacrifices, all these take place as part of B'nai Israel's commitment to the law and only as part of their commitment to the law. Let us return to the structure of chapter 24 and the issues raised earlier. Why does the Torah embed the story of the Brit within the story of the ascent of Moshe and the leadership? What is the thematic connection of the Brit to the ascent of Moshe and the leadership onto the mountain and their respective visions and intimate interactions with God? The answer lies in some of the themes elucidated above. The Torah wishes to emphasize that the various forms and aspects of the spiritual quest, religious ecstasy, sacrifices, and ascending to God on the one hand, and covenantal commitment to the Word of God on the other hand, constitute harmonious rather than conflicting categories. Each is somehow a necessary condition for and the result of the other. The Torah knows of no conflict between law and spirituality, between celebrating the divine and seemingly dry legalism, between the encounter with God on the mountaintop and a commitment to a code. The two categories fit neatly together in the text and in the experience of B'nai Israel. Together, they comprise the rationale, purpose, and culmination of the redemption from Egypt, a nation and its leaders serving God and celebrating his presence, fully and absolutely committed to his word.